Hope y'all are doing well. I think Jordan explained the uh, whole light scenario to you. So that's why the light's on during the video. Um, it exploded in some sense on us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, we were in 1 Peter 3 last week. Uh, since it was Valentine's Day, Jack, we, we moved, made sure we tried to move the marriage sermon from 1 Peter 3 to February 13. And so we're, we've already done uh, 1 Peter 3, 8, all the way through 4, 6. And so I'm picking up at 4, 7 right now. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. And we'll go all the way through 19. So we'll finish chapter 4 today, and then we'll be in chapter 5 next week. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in uh, at First Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We know <clears throat> from it that there is enormous power in it. And so we're not just reading a book together, but as we're reading your words, your very words, your Holy Spirit is teaching us and guiding us into tr all truth and convicting our hearts. There is so much more than um, happening than what we can see. But I do pray that you would help us be aware that your word is remarkably powerful and that we should deeply desire to submit ourselves to it. Be with us now as we look at your word. We pray for hearts to be changed and hearts to be deeply moved by the truths of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's, there's a little bit of two sections. I know in your text, if you look, uh, there's a little subheading that Peter didn't write, um, right above verse 12, that says suffering as a Christian. And so there's, there, there's a lot of flow in between the two. Um, and I'll, I'll explain to you that how the verses flow together. But there is a little bit of, um, if you break out verses 7 through 11 and 12 through 19, there, there are kind of two major teaching points, but it all kind of flows together. So let me, let me explain that to you, and then we'll, we'll look at it in depth. If you look at verse 7, it says, the end of all things is at hand. So I've said this before, but Peter and his listeners are absolutely 100% convinced that in their lifetime, Jesus is going to come back. They, they believe. Now, we can look at it and say, wrong, you missed it. <laughs> it's 2016, you were way off. But the way they lived was absolutely convinced that it's going to happen. So um, while maybe it's not going to happen in our lifetimes either. I would submit that it might. I would, I would submit that it would. Who knows, right? The key is this. They lived like they were convinced it was going to happen. So if you and I lived like we were convinced Jesus was going to come back at any moment, we would live differently. We wouldn't live self-centered. We wouldn't rack up idols of comfort. We wouldn't rack up, uh, you know, taking the long road on actually starting finally to get around to being a part of the Great Commission. But we would, we would hop right in and get going. We would kill sin as fast as we could. Like we would be, I think, much more in, in, intentional with the way we live our lives as believers if we were 
convinced that Jesus was going to come back. If, if I said, literally, Jesus, come back in 30 days. 30 days. you got 30 days to do everything you want for Jesus. You would shift this next month to make major changes in your life for Christ. That's the way they lived every day. Every day. And so, because of that, because of this end, end of all things mentality that they lived in day by day, it, it changed the way they can look at suffering, which is what you're going to look at 12 through 19, whenever we'll get to it. But whenever I say, in suffering, you should rejoice, that's, that's such a contrary notion. But the reason why is because of the larger context up to verse 7 is because they lived in this end of all things at hand mentality. So suffering was so temporal to them, so temporal that they were absolutely, that means like they knew it was temporary. That they were willing to, to say, I can rejoice in suffering. Now, let's go over to verse 7. And I want you to see there's, there's in this uh, three little ideas of, of the end of all things or apocalyptic nature or the it's end times. Lots of movies and shows out there right now like with the, the end of all time kind of motif going on. Everything's all gone and it's just, you know, mayhem. What's, how are you going to live? What's it going to be like where there's no... There's no, like, law. There's no, like, everybody goes crazy. And if everybody lived like this, then it would be mayhem. The thing is that Christians only believe this and, and non-Christians don't. But <clears throat> Peter wants you to see, okay, if I were to say, you only got 30 days to live. Non-believers, when they hear that, it's just like, okay, debauchery city for 30, for, for 30 days to get everything off my bucket list I can do. And he's saying, careful believers that you don't import that wretched mentality into your own life, you need to live contrary to that, that fictional notice that you need to sow your wild oats in this end of all times mentality. You, you have a certain way that you're called to live every day. And he, and he tells you there's, there's three particular ways that he wants you to live in, in this particular text. At the end of all things at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So if you say you've got 30 days to live, the last thing on the world's mind is being self-controlled and sober-minded. But he has a personal word to Christians in the way that regard you're going to conduct yourself in holiness. And he says, don't go crazy and lose all your inhibitions and morals like the rest of the people would likely do. Instead, live Every day, self-controlled, holiness. Live every day, sober-minded, realizing that the way I live in every moment should be reflective of the fact that I, 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 my life is for Jesus. So he's a little word for you in day-to-day living in end times mentality. But he also broadens it out. That was kind of a personal word. Don't live like a heathen. But he also says in verse 8, above all, uh, keep loving one another earnestly. So we know in the context of community, he's going to broaden out into community. You'll see in the, in the whole flow of verse 8. In the context of community, there's a, there's a command to us that says, you need to continue loving each other. And, and not just kind of this broad, hey, I love you, like I love cheeseburgers. But like, like, I love you, like I deeply love you. I care about you very much. And that love is going to inform the way you and I are going to interact with each other. And he says, in verse 8, above all, uh, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So this love covering a multitude of sins is, um, it's assuming some things. It's assuming that you're in a community with each other. It's assuming that you're in deep community with each other. So much so, you've been, you've been 
with each other so much that there's been ample time and opportunity that you know each other where you've actually sinned against one another. That doesn't happen right away, usually. We're usually very polite with one another in our surfacey relationships. We go, hey, how you doing? I'm good, okay. Not gonna say anything mean, but after being with someone for a while, just get married for three days. <laughs> you're gonna sin against them. Three, two days. Like you're, you're gonna sin against them. And in this, he has a personal word for kind of end of all things mentality, a personal word for community. That in that, first of all, be in community. There, you don't have a choice on this. You are, as a believer, even if it's the end of all times, and you're like, what's the point? He's not, he's not giving them like an out. Oh, that's only 30 days, no point in getting to know anybody. Be in community. In that being in community, what's going to happen is you're going to get sinned against. It's, it's always going to happen. And when that happens and you dislike it, which we all would, it's easy to just say, this community is not for me. Uh, I got sinned against here. And so I'm out of here. and I'm going to go find me another community where I can be real surfacy and not get known and maybe not get sinned against. But that's not what he says. He says, because you already have this deep foundation of love guiding you into and informing the way you're going to interact, when you're sinned against, because you love so earnestly, love is going to do something in you that when you're sinned sinned against, it's going to cover the sins that happen against you. Whenever you love someone, inevitably, I mean, really give your heart over to a community in depth, you're going to get sinned against. Large or small, it's going to be big sins or small sins, it's going to happen. But if you love them, and I mean really love them, a Christ-like love for them, you're going to have your love cover the sins that happen. And when we say cover, it doesn't mean that you don't act like it happens. It doesn't mean that you don't discuss it. It doesn't mean you, didn't, you just pretend like it's not there. It means in the most gospel-centered way, because Christ has forgiven you, and you've sinned against him, you're going to extend that out. What's vertical informs horizontal. You're going to extend that out, and you're going to forgive them. Whatever has happened against you, because God has forgiven you, you're going to not look past, it, past the sin out like it didn't happen, but instead, you're going to have a gospel conversation where you're in this community where you're supposed to be, even though it's the end of all times. I'm going to do this because the Lord wants me to be in community, and we're going to talk about how I feel, We're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to let the gospel inform this. And because God has forgiven me, I'm going to forgive you. And vice versa, you're going to forgive me. So there's, in this end of all uh, times mentality, that we see there's a personal word for Christians to live holy lives, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. There's a personal word for community, that we are to be in community. And as we're in community, that we are supposed to be a gospel community. Meaning that we're going to, we're going to get sinned against. We're, We're well aware of that. And when that happens, we're not going to cut bait and run, but we're going to stay. We're going to stay and forgive as we've been forgiven. And then as you keep going, he has some more things he wants to say about the personal word for Christians and end of all things mentality is you've also all been gifted. You've all been gifted with spiritual gifts and you're going to use these things. You can see it in verse 9, show hospitality uh, to one another without growing. As each one of you received a gift, use it to serve one another. And as good stewards of God, various grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So you can see um, verse nine, all the way down to the, the 
11a, if you will, there's gift language. He uses three scenarios there, hospitality, serving, and speaking. And basically, you can go to Romans 12, you can go to 1 Corinthians 12, you can go to Ephesians 4, and you can make a whole big list of all the gifts that's listed in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. But he's, Peter's using three little examples, and he's saying, inside of that, you need to be willing to use your gifts. So the word is, regarding gifts, continually practicing, continue practicing your gifts, even at an end of all times mentality. It's, it's God's coming back any moment. Continually use your gifts. Hospitality. Your house might be the house that everybody comes to. You might not like it, but it just ends up being, it's the best house. And he's saying, suck it up. Like what needs to happen is continue to show hospitality and don't grumble about it. Praise the Lord that you're the one that gets to be the one that's hospitable. Or serve. Some of you are just really good at serving. And if that's you, use your gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Be, be servants. And, and invariably, in every gospel community, 12 to 15 people, there's someone that's good at speaking. There's someone who's able to gospel one another. I'm getting used to using the word gospel as a verb now instead of just a noun. You're able to gospel each other. Like you're able to tell each other and remind each other of the goodness of the gospel and what Christ has done and help them see how sanctification is absolutely, we, we need the gospel just as much as we do in justification as we do in sanctification. And it says, as whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God, then you need to be able to do that. Perhaps it's just explaining theology, but more than likely it's helping each other apply the truths of the gospel. That's what we're talking about with the everyday church. Everyday church. We have people that are living lives of holiness, even though we're living in light of it being end times. We're absolutely in community. We're loving each other and we're forgiving each other in a gospel-centered way. And we're using our gifts, whatever your gifts are. You've got no cop out here. You can't say, I don't have gifts. (laughs) You do. If you're a believer, you have gifts. It might just be one. But you have one, I promise you, because the Bible says you do. And I can say that with absolute 100% authority you do. And you've got to be exercising it. You've got to be exercising it. Now, with that, we're going to move into this next section. So the, the way that section 11 through 11 informs 12 through 19 uh, helps us understand in this, as we move to verses 12 through 19, he's going to talk about suffering. So we talked about Peter. We talked about why he wrote. We know in verse 1, um, there, there, was, there was a group of Christians, pretty large likely, that was living. There, there, everybody was a brand new Christian trying to figure it out. Suffering, persecution came. They spread themselves out. They dispersed themselves to at least four different regions. I think they had created in those four regions at least 12 different churches or so. Peter wrote this letter. And it's kind of circulating around. And as it's circulating around, he's addressing things like, I know that you were in the context of everybody together and trying to figure out what's like being a Christian was difficult and now you're spread and but it's still absolutely important you live holy so he addresses that uh, living holiness but he also says hey your government persecuted you and caused this and you're probably wondering do I have to do I have to submit to this government still he addresses that and invariably like we all if we've all been persecuted why am I being persecuted he's covering that and he's going to in here talk about whenever we're suffer whenever we're experiencing suffering he's going to point us back to this truth which is hard, but in the midst of suffering, you have great reason, not just a small reason, great reason to rejoice when you're suffering. That's, that's the contrary nature. That's the opposite of what most of us would do. At least when suffering comes my way, I'm ticked off. I want to complain about it. I want to run the other way. I certainly don't think, oh, opportunity for rejoicing that I get to suffer. 
But here he's going to give us six reasons. And I just want to point out, verse 7 through 11, which we just read, is no accident leading us into. So we live, the reason why we can go through suffering is because we realize it's this temporal nature of we're living in of all things time. Jesus could come back at any moment now and suffering, the other side of suffering is glory. Like suffering, like if you're going to the all other side that God, of God's promise is finally we'll be in glory. And we also have a push towards living holiness. We have a push towards being in community and we have a push towards making sure we practice our gifts. So if we see people suffering, be in the community that goes over and helps them. So I don't think it's any accident that 12 through 19 is after we just heard these things in verses 11, 7 through 11. So as we go into 12 through 19, you're going to see here six reasons why you can rejoice in suffering. Let, let, me, let me help you see why I think we're supposed to rejoice in suffering. So in verse 13, it says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad. So in verse 13, we know when sufferings come, God's telling us, you can rejoice and be glad. This isn't just a, uh, this isn't just a, a petron thought, that means a thought of Peter, but it's also in James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James also believes it, and, and, and throughout the Bible, the Lord is saying to us over and over, when suffering comes, it is an opportunity for you now to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Spurgeon says it this way. Spurgeon's not in the Bible. So we can rest on Peter and James, but I like Spurgeon. He says it this way. Those who dive deep into the sea of affliction will bring up rare pearls. You won't bring up a rare pearl if you don't dive deep into the sea of affliction. But those that finally do dive deep into the sea of affliction, whenever they experience suffering, and we'll see at the end that it's because of God's will, but whenever they're in there, they're the ones that get to grasp onto these rare pearls of opportunity to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Very few maybe get that really, really the depth of that. But there's reasons why. So let me show you in the text reasons why we can rejoice in suffering. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. So... That word fiery trial, it's not like going through fire and going to get burned after the other side. It's just going to be awful and everything's terrible. So it is, I mean, a fiery trial would be that. But the way that you should understood fiery trial is refining fire. So refining fire is different than fiery trial. My house burned down. It's all awful. Okay. But refining fire, that seems purposeless. Refining fire, there's a purpose behind that. Whenever something is refined by fire, it's purified and it's strengthened. So here he's saying, whenever you're going through the refining fire, don't be surprised at the refining fire when it comes to test you. It changes the idea of suffering and gives it purpose. So the first reason why you can suffer then um, and rejoice is because suffering isn't a surprise. Don't be surprised. Because you're actually going through something that's called a refining fire. Not a fiery trial that has no purpose, but a refining fire. So suffering isn't a surprise because he says, don't be surprised. Instead, it's a joy. It's a fiery trial, yes, but it's a refiner's fire. Because in that, 
Suffering is going to bring about two things, purity and strength. We're going to purify us from sin. So one of, and I would say maybe the, but one of the best things that comes through suffering is the Lord uses it as a sanctification tool. God uses it so that you will become more like him, more sanctified. And in it, we're going to see that we're being purified, made holy, and made stronger. Obviously, stronger means not weak. Okay, that's good. It's not a tough one, not a tough one. Um, but here, here I, want to, uh, I want to take a slightly different slant on sanctification. Because um, most of the time, maybe to my detriment, whenever we talk about sanctification, I talk about kind of this, this uh, trajectory of holiness where you become more and more Christ-like and less and less sinful. And when I say that, sometimes I think that it indicates uh, that the behavioral change is what's the most important. The morality shift that you have is what's most important. The, the, I sin less and I don't, don't sin quite as much. And that's what's the best thing about sanctification is I just I have a moral shift. My moral behavior changes. And, and that is part of it. I mean, if you're becoming more Christ-like, you're going to sin less. But there's another side to it. I heard the guy say it this week at um, this uh, pastor's thing I was at. He said one of the primary things in sanctification that, that he, he likes to talk about and likes to remind people is the more and more you're sanctified, yes, you should be improving your lives morally, sinning less. But more than anything, there is a growing realization that you have a, a greater need for Jesus in the gospel. So sanctification, as you're going through it, means you're becoming more aware of your sinfulness. Though you might be sinning less, you're becoming more aware of your sinfulness. So you're walking through that and you're becoming like, oh, I'm, I'm far more sinful. And so sanctification is more about a greater craving for Jesus in the gospel. So even when you sin, you say, wow, I'm so much more aware how much I need this far bigger gospel than I imagined to be here for me to forgive me. So it's, it's a I think probably a far more gospel-centered way to think about sanctification. Sanctification should be a reduction in morality, to the positive, a reduction in bad behavior. But more than anything, this is a huge part of sanctification, is that you are far more aware now that you have an even larger need for Jesus in the gospel. And that's going to grow every day. The more and longer you're a Christian the more aware of how sinfully inclined you are and how much you need Christ in the gospel. Not less. As you grow in sanctification, you're like, I, I don't need Jesus anymore at all. I don't sin. That's, that's not sanctification. It's, wow, I'm far more sinful than I need. God help me. And thank you for this huge gospel. And I think suffering can do that for us. It's a refining fire. It makes us pure and strong. The next one reason we can rejoice in suffering is in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So suffering, another reason we can rejoice in suffering is because suffering is evidence that we're sharing in Christ's sufferings. And that helps us realize that we're really united to him. We all want to have assurance that we're, we're believers. And so suffering helps us understand 
you are, you, you do have union with Christ. And not only that, the Bible says that you're literally, as it says, when you suffer, you are sharing Christ's sufferings. That's remarkable language. That's not something to just breeze past. Colossians chapter one uses language like this as well. I want to read to you how it says, uh, Paul writes this. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So Paul uses language like Christ's sufferings are somehow lacking. And when it, because they're lacking, Peter says, I'm sharing in them. And what's lacking, I am actually using the language, Paul uses the language of filling up what's lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Peter says sharing, Paul says filling up what's lacking. Now, you can take some major heretical right turns on that verse, right? What does that mean? L- let, me, let me explain to you what it means. So let's just take one step back and realize Christ's sufferings and our sufferings are completely different, right? Christ's sufferings were for atonement purposes. He suffered so that he could be the penalty for sin so that those who trust in him can receive forgiveness of their sin. Our sufferings are not atonement oriented. You don't suffer so that someone can trust in you and have forgiveness of their sins like you paid for their sins. Instead, as Paul says, we're filling up what's lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. What's lacking right now? What's lacking right now is Christ's personal presentation in the flesh of his sufferings. He is in heaven. He's not here right now physically with us. And so he is not able to physically, publicly present his sufferings to them. And so we get to share in those sufferings where today, as we're persecuted for the faith or as we walk through life and experience suffering and point our minds and hearts and people to Jesus, we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ in that we are the personal presentation of Christ's sufferings, not salvific, not atonement oriented, but nonetheless sharing in them so that when people see us, we say, the reason why I'm doing this is because of Jesus. And when you look at my sufferings, they're nothing. As a matter of fact, you should look over to his sufferings because these sufferings are the things that actually atone for your sins. So while you personally present what's lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions or suffer for Christ physically uh, and people see it, you point them over to Jesus where they can actually receive forgiveness of sin by trusting in Christ. So we share in his sufferings by pointing people to Christ's sufferings. All right, so let's take one little step back and say, is that reason to rejoice? That when I suffer and I point people to Jesus who suffered for them and they trust in Christ and get saved and their eternal path crosses over from death to life, they no longer receive the horrific nature of hell forever, but instead forgiveness forever. I think that's great reason to rejoice in suffering. Yes, the physical nature of the suffering is terrible. But the fact that God can use it to point people to Jesus (laughs) Well, that certainly makes it worth it. John Piper says it this way. When he's kind of comparing uh, where we will quickly retreat to comfort and luxury rather than suffering, and really where we're going to find our satisfaction, he says, I have never heard anyone say, the deepest and rarest and most satisfying joys of my life have come in times of extended ease and earthly comfort. No one says that. So what do they say? 
I have found my rarest and most satisfying joys in my life that have times that have come in, in the midst of suffering. So we shouldn't fool ourselves and think that luxury is going to bring us comfort and deep joy, which is why I bring us back up to the, the Spurgeon quote. Those who dive deep in the sea of affliction will bring up rare pearls. When we're living our lives largely for Jesus and we experience suffering, we can take comfort in knowing that we're not attached to the idols of ease and comfort. We're not attached to ease, <clears throat> but that we're sharing in Christ's afflictions and we're pointing people to Jesus. <laughs> and that's great reason to rejoice, especially if they meet Jesus, especially if they give their lives over to him. But even if they don't, we're still having an opportunity to be obedient to the Great Commission. So keep rejoicing when you suffer because it's evidence of your union with Christ and it's evidence that you are pointing them to Christ. Next one is in the second part of 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that, when, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When his glory is revealed. Now, remember <clears throat> in verse seven, where Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So they lived day to day, truly believing like, is this it? Maybe, maybe at lunch? Maybe at dinner, like continually believing that it's going to happen. So glory, which is just a synonym for this is finally over and I'm in heaven and it's going to happen any moment. Glory was ever present in their mind. They know that they had to suffer, but suffer yields glory. And they're waiting for it, truly anticipating it, wanting it to happen at any moment. Not happy with this world because they know glory is infinitely better. So when, we, when you read this, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's them saying, finally, he did come and I'm in glory with him. So the third reason we can rejoice then is suffering is a means to greater glory. Suffering when it's over means that we're finally in heaven in glory with Jesus. And this is what the ultimate end of all of our minds should be. You can see it even in First Peter, right in this text. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exalt the elders among you as fellow elders and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ. There's the sufferings, as well as partakers of the glory that's going to be revealed. Sufferings than glory. If we've partaken in the sufferings of Christ, we've also experienced suffering. One day we're going to have glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 also says the same thing. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may, may be glorified with him. So suffering, yes, is difficult for us. But it always, for Christians, is yielding the hope of glory. So let me ask this. It's the best way I can think about number three and truly rejoicing in suffering. Are you, and I, are we truly living a life that's desiring every day to be in glory? Is that hitting our radar screen even weekly? Man, I really want to be in glory. Man, I really want to be in glory. Or are we finding ourselves captivated, held prison by things here? just the shiny objects that draw our attention and affection away from Jesus. 
Piper says, if we become embittered at life and the pain that it deals us in regard to suffering, we're not preparing to rejoice at the revelation of Christ's glory. And I would also add to Piper, who am I to add to Piper, I know. (laughs) If we're becoming enamored with this world, then we're not preparing our minds to rejoice at the revelation of Christ's glory. So suffering is a way to wean ourselves, starve ourselves off the shiny objects of this world and instead embrace when suffering happens because we can truly rejoice at it and we will rejoice at Christ's glory. Not be like, oh, it came back. I had so much stuff I wanted to do still. Man, I really wanted to blah, 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 blah. That's, that's insane. I'm not saying you're insane. <laughs> the next reason you can re- uh, rejoice in suffering is in verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because, so if you experience suffering, even if it's just for insults, for insults, Hey, you Bible thumper. Hey, you, you know, whatever, fill it in. Maybe it's got expletives. Hey, you, whatever. When that happens, you're blessed. When you're you're persecuted, when you experience suffering. Because, here's the reason. Here's the reason why you can rejoice in suffering. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You you are aware, in in John 14, chapters 14 through 16, there's kind of this long... uh, even some in 15, but more, mostly 14, 16, there's this conversation, ongoing conversation between Jesus and the disciples where he looks at him and he goes, listen, it's better that I'm not here. Better that you don't have the king of the universe with you, but instead it's better that I leave. And that if I leave, the third person of the Trinity is gonna come. He's not gonna be here with you, but he's gonna be in you. And Christ is trying to convince his disciples, it's better that I'm gone. And that, God, the Holy Spirit is in you. So based on that conversation from those chapters, we can infer that having evidence of the Holy Spirit in us is a huge deal. It's something to be greatly rejoicing about. And here, suffering then can be a means to rejoice or be a reason to rejoice because then it's evidence that we have the Holy Spirit in us. Of which Jesus said, it's better to have the Holy Spirit in you than me walking around with you personally every day. Like, hey, what are we doing? What's going on? He says it's better to have the Holy Spirit. So the fourth reason, fourth reason that you can rejoice in the midst of suffering is because it shows you that the Spirit of glory or the Spirit of God is resting upon you. It's resting upon you. Grudem says, God, talking about to believers, has given you believers an unusual fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit to bless you and strengthen you and have even a foretaste of heavenly glory. This means that in the hour of our absolute greatest trial, the Holy Spirit brings tremendous consolation. Tremendous consolation and great suffering on earth. We have a great support from heaven. The Holy Spirit. That was Piper, by the way. I forgot to say it's Piper. In the midst of great suffering on earth here, we have great support from heaven. Edmund Clowney, as he looks at this text, says, Peter no doubt remembers that Jesus promised to provide the help of the Spirit whenever uh, the accusers came. Christians in Galatia and Bithynia are not promised. Now, Clowney's kind of looking at the, the great the, the 
the meta narrative of the New Testament. And he's saying, there are some things that happen in the New Testament. And he says, in this promise of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, these particular believers that Peter's talking to, they're not promised tongues of fire. They're not promised Stephen's vision of Christ at the right hand of God whenever they're insulted. Those things would be awesome. Tongues of fire, I'd love that. You insulted me, I call down tongues of fire on you. Boom, you're done. Or I can just look up and see Jesus in heaven. That would be great when it's happening. Okay, Jesus, you're standing, you're applauding, you're thinking everything's great, I'm gonna continue on. He says there's something even better. We don't have those two things, but they are reminded that they do have Christ's spirit from his throne, and in that, we can rejoice. We have the Holy Spirit literally in us. So rejoice in the midst of suffering because it's evidence, evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. The next one, um, we got to get to it in 16, but let's read 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. So he's, he's drawing out a scenario here where there are times where you can suffer in two different ways. As Christians, you can suffer two different ways. You can suffer as those that haven't taken the advice of verses 7 to live self-respectable, self-controlled, honoring lives. You can say, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm going to swing over here towards living a life of sin and not really worrying about it. Or you can live the other way where I'm going to take holiness seriously. Um, And he says in verse 15, for those of you that are on this side, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't, Don't be living immorally and experience suffering. You want to be on this side because if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. If you're a Christian and you're living immorally, then you are going to be ashamed. And that shame is going to bring about, in some way, a life that's not glorifying God as it should. Certainly, ultimately, I know we can pull a sovereignty card, all things we do will ultimately bring glory to God, whether it's, you know, even our sin, because that points to Jesus, that covers our sin. I, I get the whole thing, right? But he's saying, in the immediate, don't be living wretched and then experience suffering for Christ because you're gonna feel shame. Like, oh, I'm doing all this bad stuff and I feel shame. He's, he's helping you see, don't do that. But instead, on the other side, but let him glorify God in that name. So if I'm not living immorally and I am experiencing suffering, then that, to a, to a greater degree, likely brings more glory to God. And you can rejoice. You can rejoice. This suffering is going to glorify God. Glorifying God, we just mean by our actions and our attitudes. Both of those things are glorious to God. He's pleased with them, and it brings honor to him. What I'm doing and what I'm thinking, both. And so, Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. So the fifth reason we can, we can rejoice in the midst of suffering is suffering, big picture, glorifies God. Christian suffering glorifies God. Have you ever heard this? I mean, philosophers and uh, people in general always kind of ask the big question, why am I here? Like, what, why, did, why was I born? Why is anybody born? Why, why do people have such short amount of life compared to all eternity? And what's, it seems kind of pointless. What's the whole point? What are you here for? It's already been answered. Everybody, the chief end of man is to glorify God. Like the reason why, the main reason, the 
the big time reason why you are given life, breath in your lungs and you're living right now is to bring glory to God. Whatever you do, whatever you're doing in your life, the ultimate end is to give glory to God. And so suffering provides you a way to bring glory to God, to do what you were ultimately created to do. And for that reason, that's great reason to rejoice. We can rejoice in suffering because we know that when we suffer, we bring glory to God. We should, in our lives, act, speak, think in God-honoring ways, especially in the midst of suffering, so that we can honor God with our lives. Paul and Silas, as they were in Acts chapter 16, going through the city of Philippi, preaching the gospel, falsely accused, lied about, beaten up terribly, thrown into a jail. And at midnight, what do they do? They use that opportunity to start singing hymns and praising God and giving God glory. Suffering was an opportunity for them to give God glory. Peter, the writer of this book, John 21, we know he's told he's going to suffer. And history bears that out. That shortly after he wrote this book in 2 Peter, he was killed for his faith. And he insisted that it be upside down. Suffering glorified God. Now, I know that you're not necessarily going to suffer like that. Maybe you will. But when you choose to go to the 1040 window, or whether you choose to confess Christ just to the people across your street, or in the midst of suffering, you're pointing people to Christ their only hope because he's your only hope. All those things glorify God. So it can be something as big as you're moving to the Middle East to be a missionary for the rest of your life and you might receive suffering and that's going to glorify God. And it could be something as easy, and I would say simple, as walking across the street, getting to know your neighbor and sharing the gospel with them. All of those and anything in between those two extremes glorify God. And the suffering that comes along with that, even if it's just as it said, when people insult you for the name of Christ, it's an opportunity to do what you were created to do. Glorify God. Verse 17 says, for time, and it's time for judgment to begin. Now when you read judgment, don't just think negative. Like judgment, oh that's bad. The, this, the meaning of this word judgment um, is judgment and it can be good or it can be bad. So you can see as you continue on in the verse that there's, there's judgment that's good for Christians that are you know, believers and there's judgment for non-believers that's going to be bad. For is a time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So <clears throat> that's the good judgment. Um, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? So you have the household of God that obeys the gospel at trust, and you have the household of God that doesn't. So for the church, the household of God, the judgment will be something good, namely heaven forever with Christ Jesus. For those that are outside the church, though for those who do not obey the gospel, and by the way, I love the phrase obey the gospel. It just, for me, in our legalistic, Bible belt, uh, believe in God world where like, I believe in God. Well, so does the devil. Like that's, that's not saving. <laughs> like it, it creates a little bit more understanding, obey the gospel. For those that don't obey the gospel, those outside the church, the outcome won't be good. Like the household of God, it will be horrific. It will be absolutely horrific. And verse 18, um, 
You have to be led into verse 18 from verse 17. So we've already got this scenario where the judgment's coming. Those in the household of God will be saved. Those who aren't, they won't be in verse 18. So in verse 18, he's, he's quoting Proverbs 11, uh, 31. It says, if the righteous are scarcely saved, the household of God are scarcely saved, what will, be the, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's a rhetorical question. It's horrific. It's forever. And so that reminds me of Matthew 7. The, the, the path is narrow for those that will become Christians and the road is wide for those that want. And as he draws all that out, that leads us into verse 19, which gives us our last reason for, for uh, rejoicing in the midst of suffering. <clears throat> Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Your soul has been, if you're a believer, has been entrusted to a faithful creator while doing good. So there's a lot in that verse I want to point to, but let me, let me start by telling you the sixth reason. The sixth reason you can rejoice in suffering is because suffering reminds us that God is ultimately caring for our soul. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. That should bring great comfort. That it's not me that's caring for your soul, ultimately. Although we're going to get into 1 Peter and 5 and see elder care next week. It's not your wife. It's not your husband. It's not you. Instead, it's the one who can be trusted. The faithful creator, as Peter calls him, is ultimately, ultimately caring for your soul. So let's, let's look at all the little pieces and parts of verse 19 because there's a lot to it. Number one, he's a faithful creator. He can be trusted. He's a faithful creator. He can absolutely be trusted. Number two, the according to God's will phrase. The according to God's will phrase can be taken. um, According to God's will, when suffering happens, according to God's will, you should entrust God with your soul and do good. While that is the understanding somewhat, it's actually bigger. According to God's will, who brought about the suffering, according to God's will, you should entrust your soul to the faithful creator and do good. That's the better understanding, is that the suffering itself is according to God's will, not just your behavior afterwards should be according to God's will. Grudem says this, regarding that very truth, he says, Christians do not suffer accidentally or because the irresistible forces of blind fate are happening. Like, Mother nature brought it about. There's no such thing as mother nature. It's God. (laughs) Rather, Christians suffer according to God's will. This may seem harsh, but upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found than this, that it is God's good and perfect will, and it is for our good. It would be major mayhem if all things weren't happening according to God's will. Which means, in the midst of suffering, Romans 8.28 is always true. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, midst of suffering, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let me take a little two-minute counseling 
advice for you. If you're ever gonna be in the midst of counseling on suffering, Romans 8.28 is where you ultimately wanna get with people. Romans 8.28 is not where you start with people. If, they have a, if, they're, if they're strong believers and they have this long foundations of Romans 8.28, when you get there, they're gonna be willing to get there faster. But when Lazarus died, did Jesus quote Romans 8.28? What did he do? Y'all should know this. It's like the easiest verse in the Bible to memorize. He wept. Jesus wept. Like my kids got that one down. I'm teaching them Bible verses and they got that one. So when we enter into suffering, little counseling 101 session, you enter into that with them. You, you want to get to Romans 8.28, but you enter in the moment of suffering and you weep with them. You're there with them. That's what Jesus did. He entered into. And after that, eventually, we'll get to Romans 8.28 with them, depending on where they are. If they don't have this long foundation, we need to be far more mindful of how we get to Romans 8.28. It's, it's true. You have to get there. I have a, I have a buddy. Um, his name's Kelly. He's a worship leader. Uh, he had been married six months, circa 1990, where were we? No, 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 no. 2001, circa 2001. He had been married about six months. Um, his wife was a school teacher. He was finished his senior year at Charleston Southern. Uh, she was driving. An 18-wheeler like, came straight at her. She avoided it, ran right into a pole, killed her instantly. Six, they'd been married six months. And he said to me, a lot of godly people that love Jesus said a lot of horrible pieces of it, tried to give me a, a lot of advice, and most of it was terrible. Most of it was pretty bad. They were trying to jump to Romans 8.28 whenever he was still weeping. So we gotta be mindful. We, we gotta get them to Romans 8.28. We gotta say that this is for our good. This was not an accident, and the Lord ordained this, and the best thing that we can understand is that this is going to bring out about my good. But that comes later. The Lord brought him another wife, by the way. He's got three lovely kids. He's still in ministry. He's flourishing. The Lord was good. It was a Job outcome, if you will. He's actually in Charlotte. He's a good guy. Um, but some other things I want you to see. So first, that he's a faithful creator that can be trusted. The second is that it's all things that happen are according to God's will. Third, you should entrust your soul to him. This word trust isn't like, I trust you. It's, it's, I'm going to give over to you this thing for safekeeping and I'm gonna turn it over to you for care because I can't do it like you can. That's, that's the Christian life and, and trusting my soul. God, I can't care for my soul the way that you can. So I'm going to take it and I'm gonna hand it over to you and I'm gonna entrust you that you're gonna safekeep it. You're gonna care for it far better than I ever could. That's what we're saying when we're saying He's a faithful creator that while we're doing this, we're doing according to his will, we entrust our souls. In the midst of suffering, that's a huge tall order to tell someone. Last little thing I want you to see in there is while doing good. There's always a continual, ongoing, I don't like the word commandment, but let's just use it for for fun. (laughs) Commandment that you're supposed to live a life that's, you know, good. And that just means Christ honoring, Christ exalting, Christ like. In the midst of suffering, you have to be Christ-like. You have to, be, you have to point people to Jesus. So suffering is a great reason to rejoice because it reminds us that God is ultimately caring for our soul. Who else would you want to do that? No one. 
Let, let's end this way. Over in verse 11, I want to end with that doxology that, that Peter goes into. You can see in verse 11, after he talks about using the gifts, uh, whoever serves, let him serve by the strength that God supplies. And there's a little dash, and then you have this doxology at the end of verse 11. And he says this, in order that in everything God may be glorified. In everything, in the midst of fiery trials, in the midst of refining fire, in trials of all kinds, in sufferings and persecution, in everything, your and my ultimate goal, as it says in verse 11, is that Jesus would be glorified in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the whole reason any of this is going on. Our Christian life, suffering, pointing us to making sure that we can rejoice in suffering because everything ultimately is pointing towards his glory, not our own. So as we're looking at this letter, are you glorifying God with the way you live your life in holiness? Back to week one. Are you glorifying God with the way that you submit to authority, job, government? Are you, last week, glorifying God in your marriage as the husband or the wife? I'm so thankful Jack preached that last week. I asked him to preach it because I knew he would bring an entirely different angle on marriage than I have. I've preached every sermon on marriage the entire time of Remedy. And I asked him, I saw it coming. Jack, will you please preach that? If you haven't heard it, please go download it and listen to it last week. It's phenomenal. Are you glorifying God in your marriage? Are you glorifying God in persecution? We'll even see next week, we'll ask the question, are we glorifying God as elders? Are we glorifying God in the way that we follow elders? And then you could just fill in all the other things at First Peter that isn't talking about. Are you glorifying God in everything? Because to Jesus and Jesus alone be all the glory, all the dominion, forever. And if that's not enough, and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we worship. And I pray that we would, we wouldn't just say, yeah, yeah, I guess I am. Like we would stop and reflect. We're truly seeking to glorify God with everything. The truth is, in the midst of suffering, you'll never leave our side. You're always there for us. You're our only hope. You're our our only desire. We want to give you glory. So help us, Lord, in the midst of suffering. Point us to you and you alone. Give us this great reassurance of the Holy Spirit in us. Help us realize that in the midst of suffering, we can rejoice because we know that suffering is bringing about sanctification. Suffering is bringing you glory. Suffering is the end. Our suffering is the means to glory for us. We love you. We trust you. We entrust our souls to you. You're our only hope because you never leave our side. I pray this in Jesus' name.